Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. Nathan Barry, welcome back. You've been gone for way too long. I missed you so very much, and I am so glad you're back. It is Friday Q&A on the show. I'm glad to be back, too. Before I think anyone says anything, yes, I am fixing my microphone. Um, Barrett, I missed you. It's been like weeks. Many episodes. Well, shall we start with a little red, yellow, green? I'm green. Definitely green. It's been Mm. a good week. Uh, Camping was really good. Shout nature. It's busier than normal, but not too bad. Like nature is busier than normal. Nature is busier than normal. Oh, I actually, we heard from like one of the forest service rangers that they're, they're counting uh, like more than double up to two and a half times the uh, annual or like the normal volume of people out in nature. Wow. So I like their visitor centers and all of that. Um, we didn't really go anywhere near people. It's just the lake that we were on. You know, there was lots of boats and that kind of thing. It was funny though. Friday evening was busy. Saturday, the lake was crazy. Sunday, it was mostly quiet. And Monday, it was dead. And I was like, oh, okay. Lesson learned. Monday. <laughs> I'll be here on Mondays in the future. Yeah, so, no kidding. That was good. How about you? Uh, I'm pretty green. Been a good week. Uh, made some good decisions to move the company forward. Um, <laughs> Actually, I hope you made good decisions while I was gone. <laughs> made some big decisions, maybe I <laughs> oh. should say. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's not too much going on. It's the NBA playoffs, so I've been enjoying that lately. And uh, I thought I was going to get to go camping this weekend because we had some friends who offered up a spot. And then it turns out that my wife is actually on call for one of the companies Uh, she works with. So uh, we're not going anymore. So I guess I'll just be at home this weekend. Like usual? Yes, exactly. It is Q&A Friday, which means if you're listening live... You can ask your questions live in the chat on YouTube, and we will answer them first. If you submitted them ahead of time, we'll answer those first as well. So anyways, we've got a bunch of questions submitted. We're going to get into it. Let's start. Sounds good. Um, First question I actually see here live in the chat is from Sean. Uh, How accurate are the open rates, click rates, and click statistics for broadcasts in ConvertKit? So we're getting into the nitty gritty details of email and all things tracking. Before a moment of like getting into accuracy, it's helpful to define how that works, right? So if we broaden the question, then we go to how does open and click tracking and emails even work to begin with? Basically, open tracking, if we start there, is putting a pixel in the email, so a single image, and that has to be requested from a server. And that is a unique image that is slightly modified or the URL to reach it is modified for every email that's sent out. And so you can see, did someone request that image? If yes, then the email was opened. If no, all we know is that it wasn't requested. We don't actually know that the email was not opened, right? So if you've ever seen display images in Gmail or other tools, right? That's what it's asking about. So when you have that email open, basically if the email says it was opened, it was opened by something, either by the human Or sometimes there's a few tools like Yahoo that will go in and open a bunch of emails. So basically open rates are consistently what they say they are or actually higher. 
you don't get like a false, is that a false negative, false positive? I don't know. They're not artificially inflated ever. Um, the way click rates work is the same kind of thing where a unique link is given to every person and every email that goes out. And with that, when that link is clicked, it redirects, you know, it goes to ConvertKit servers or MailChimp servers or whoever, and then continues on to whatever destination. And that's logged as both a click and an open. Because if you click the you link, have, you, you have, have opened it to click yeah. it. And yeah. we, we actually get that question a surprising amount. So we count both of those. So that's how someone who doesn't have display images turned on could still be tracked as having opened the email because they clicked it. So those are the two ways. Um, that little link redirect is how we do fancy things in ConvertKit, like let you change the link after the email has been sent or change the destination because it hits our servers first. So how accurate are they? Um, they're, they're quite accurate. Open rates can be lower than you might think uh, or not account for all of the data, but otherwise, you know, they're spot on. The one exception there is there's a couple tools. Yahoo is slightly famous for this that will go in and open and click every link in all the emails. Why would you do that? Right. And it might be that they're checking for spam or they're doing other things. Um, and so we have a lot of code on our side to try to detect if that was a bot that did that and to try to say and to try to not count it because we don't want your click stats getting inflated. Um, so we have that on Gmail, Yahoo and others um, just to make sure that, that doesn't happen. And we're only tracking humans. Yep. And it is a little hard. Sometimes I think we'll see customers asking, I just sent this email and it says X number of people opened it and clicked it. There are some of those situations where things just skate by where an automated service is going in and doing that or whatever it might be. So I would say they're more trustworthy than not. I'd give it like a 95% confidence interval on like how much yeah. of it is real humans opening and clicking and everything. One thing that comes up related to this pretty often these days is uh, user privacy. And can mm -hmm. I turn this off? You know, if I don't want to be tracking individuals and their actions, can I not track inside of ConvertKit? And, uh, and that is something we've implemented. You can now write into our team. And if you'd like tracking to be turned off because you value privacy above access to data, um, our team will do that for you. And the cost is that you don't get any open or click data. Uh, yeah. But the benefit is you can say that you do not actively track anything about your subscribers. So if that's important to you, FYI, that's available. All right, what do we have next? Okay, next, we got a couple on Twitter ahead of time. The first one was about building online communities. Uh, said, building online community to grow your business seems to be all the rage now. What's your guys' take on this? Is this a strategy worth pursuing? When does it make sense to invest in building a community for your business? And when does it not? Yeah, so this is from Anthony, who hosts the uh, Bean Ninjas podcast. So maybe for some quick context, you and I, you've spent a lot more time building online communities than I have. Um, I've run some for NathanBerry.com as far as like an actual community and forum, but only for a small group. We now run the ConvertKit community, which is about 20,000 members. But a lot, I mean, you've spent, you know, a few years running Fizzle and building that community and being the community manager there. So yeah, what do you think? There's a lot of pros and cons to it. Yeah. I think people talk about building communities similar to the way they talk about building memberships. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, the recurring revenue is incredible and uh, people come for the content, but they stay for the community. And they say things like that, that are like proverbs of online business. And there's a reason they become these kind of like cliche statements. Yes. I think people, uh, if done well, people will come for the content and stay for the community. 
Similarly, if you can maintain the revenue, a membership business is better than having to launch over and over and over and over. Right. And also the ifs define the whole thing. If you can do it well, a community can work really well. If you can maintain the revenue, recurring revenue can work really well for you. And what I find is that many people cannot run a community well, don't want to run a community well, Mm -hmm. and many people cannot maintain recurring revenue very well. And oftentimes these topics go hand in hand because a lot of people talk about building a community as a way to create recurring revenue that rather than having to generate content or products over and over and over, you can just bring people together and that will uh, allow you to get paid for creating value. I wanna give an example of a community that works really well, maybe as a way to highlight uh, when I think this can work. There is uh, a friend of ours named Sean Ogle. He runs a site called breaking80.com. Part of that uh, site is a paid community I think it's the Breaking 80 Club or the 80 Club or something like that, where people who have private golf memberships, golf club memberships can join. And then those people, when they travel around the country or around the world, can share access. Hey, I belong to this club. If you ever come to Ireland, let me know and I'll take you out. Hey, I'm in New York this week. You belong to that club. Would you like to get out for a round? And for golfers, access to private clubs can be quite difficult because you have to know a member. That's the whole point of being a member to a club and having it be private. And so it's got this built-in exclusivity and the simple connection between those two parties is the value. And so Sean doesn't really have to do anything. He does do things. He runs like club events where they'll have a tournament in a given place and a bunch of people will fly in to golf the tournament or whatever. But there is already a value nugget right mm-hmm. there built in to the thing. And so uh, there's a term for this. Uh, help me out, Nathan. It's not coming to mind. Sleep deprivation. Uh, I can't think of what it is. It's basically the idea that um, the bigger a community gets, the more valuable it is. The more connections there are, the like more network effects. Network effects. So there's a network effect, right? Of the more members of the 80 Club, as long as the membership stays high quality, the more access you have to golf clubs around the world. But the thing is, Sean loves golf. He Mm -hmm. loves running the events he puts on. He goes to people's, where people live and golfs with them. He invites his members to come golf with him. He is actively involved in maintaining that. And that's the same thing I saw at Fizzle. When Corbett and Chase and Caleb and Steph and I were personally involved in the community, which was mostly just a structured forum, It was thriving. People loved it. They loved seeing us there. And when it was just the members, the quality slowly degraded over time. And I think as entrepreneurs, we get in our mind this idea that if we just build it and get the revenue high enough, we can just leave it. It'll be on automatic. And there are very few businesses that actually work that way. Community being the least of them, because the point of a community is the connections. And unless Mm -hmm. you want to be the one facilitating the connections, making it come together or paying someone to do it, I think it's going to be really hard for that to be valuable to your business. I would also say that paying someone is still not as good as you being directly involved. So if you want to manage a community of people and build relationships day in and day out as your day job, build a community. But if that's not what you want to do and you're just trying to find a trick to make more money in your business, I don't think it's worth it. I wouldn't even go that route. Yeah. I think it's really important to be clear about the value that you're providing and why someone would show up consistently on a regular basis. Um, Especially think about, is it because like, are they paying for access to me? 
you know, as the creator, that can work really well, but that's going to work for a while. And then as you lose interest, they're going to lose interest and it'll taper off. And uh, often we've seen people where they'd be better off selling a high-end workshop or course or something like that, collecting a bunch of revenue up front rather than going for the recurring revenue. But if you have something else where it can really have legs beyond just access to you, like your example with Sean Ogle, I think that I think that can work well. Like, yeah, people have followed Sean. They love his stuff. But in the how much do I care about Sean versus how much do I care about golf, you know, like the access and and all of that turns into a much bigger thing. Yeah. Another community example that's gone really well would be Jason Gaynard, who runs Mastermind Talks. Mm-hmm. He's kind of in the middle. There's a lot that's built around him and the way he connects people and everything. But he's built it into something bigger and he is able to go on vacation and do other things. And the community has reached this critical mass, but I think he's been working on it for like eight years. And, right. you know, and if he took a step back and said, great, I've hired someone else to run this now. I think even then it would splinter and fall apart. Those mm-hmm. relationships that everyone has formed would still be there, but it wouldn't be through the mastermind talks community. So there's two, two principles there. One is on some level, people are paying for access to you and finding a way to replicate that is really hard or to replace Mm -hmm. yourself in that equation is really hard. And the second is, I think the more curated or exclusive, as sad as that is, the more exclusive you can make something, the more people want to be a part of it. It's just like how we're wired. And so if you can do something like application only, um, have very high bar for the kinds of members that you're accepting. So like breaking 80, you have to be a member of a private club, number one. Eventually, maybe they need to make it a certain kind of private club in order to maintain the membership. Mastermind talks. You have to run a certain kind of business to be able to be a part of that. I find that that can be, you know, entrepreneurs organization has that same kind of thing. You have to be a founder or CEO of a certain size of business. That means that inherently you're coming in with a shared level of context and like peer level that, you know, you're going to get quality out of. So anyways, a couple things on communities there. Next question was from Noah from Provocateach on Twitter. Uh, He said, have either of you struggled with perfectionism? How do you distinguish when high standards serve your broader mission and when they don't? And he added a little funny comment, which was from a reasonable reasonable person who never, ever rewords their entire tweet more than eight times. (laughs) Um, I don't struggle with perfectionism. I am not a perfectionist. I am a build it, ship it, fix it. Update it, ship it again, keep shipping, keep improving, and go from there. Sometimes that gets me into trouble. We've talked about this as the Google versus Apple method for one way to be helpful, right? Google is, they might be launching quickly. They might be spinning up more things. They could run more projects at once. And they'll put it out there and it's like, oh, it's pretty good. you know. And then they'll keep iterating and go from going from there. Apple has the other method of like, this must be perfect. People will lose their jobs, not quite their lives, but almost their jobs if this is not perfect, you know? And that's not my style. Like I don't struggle with, oh man, I can't put this out there until um, it's absolutely perfect. Um, You and I are a bit different in that. And I think that's why we complement each other well. Mm -hmm. Because like you can pull me into, you know, taking a little more time and polishing the edges and I can pull you more into like, yeah, but we got to just ship it. Yeah. yeah. What else did you add there? Uh, I definitely have struggled with this. My my personality inherently wants perfect as the outcome. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to work really hard to develop tools to fight against that over time. There's a couple of ways that I've gone about this. Uh, one of the ways I learned about this was in uh, working on an internship. The guy I was working for, 
I was uh, making a project. It was like a three slide deck to invite people to participate in the project. And it was going to go out to like influencer level people who were his peers. And he wanted to make sure it was well put together. And I brought it to him and he was like, nope, not like that. Go back, redo it. And that was about all the feedback he gave me. And then I brought it to him again. He said, no, like these three things are not what I mean. Go try again. And then I brought it to him one more time and he said, no, it's still not right. And then he did it. And he said like this, this was what I meant. And then it was good enough and he was ready to move on. And from that, I learned like the next project I worked on was making a course out of someone's collected teachings, basically. And so then I took it to him. I said, here's the first version. Nah, it's not good enough. Go fix it. And then I went back and I did it again. And I came back and he said, okay, this is like your return on effort from here is not going to be high enough. So go work on something else. Now this is done. And what I learned from that was that there's a certain point beyond which more hours is not going to make it that much better to deliver more value to someone. And so you should just go do the next thing because you've already gotten it 90, 95% of the way there. And if you're not talking about things like car axles or airplane engines, you don't need it to be the 99.999999% perfect that they do. Like an online course is not a good place for application of Six Sigma ideology. And if you don't know what that is, go look it up. So anyways, uh, the way I've gotten around this and the way I built habits around it is to build habits around shipping. I think one way is to set deadlines and don't miss them. Professionals hit their deadlines is one way that Seth Godin puts that. And then the other way is I wrote daily for a long time. I wrote daily probably for a collected year. I think I had several hundred posts just over a couple different periods of time. And we, uh, James, who was on the show actually on Monday said, you know, if you're trying to grow an audience daily is probably not the way to go because a daily post isn't going to have the same potential to rank and search or be shared as widely. Um, it's might be good for maintaining an audience, but it's not good for growing one. And so I ended up stopping, but the thing that it did for me was it helped me avoid this idea of perfection. You know, if I'm trying to write an essay that's supposed to grow my audience and spread really far, I can put too much pressure on it. Whereas if it's just, I have to ship every day, it's way easier for me to say, okay, that's, that's as good as it's going to get today, ship it, and then move on to the next thing. So building habits around shipping would be the thing I'd, I'd try and build to uh, avoid that perfectionism. Yeah. Having those habits, having that outside accountability. I love that talking about the, okay, but yes, it's not perfect, but what would another five hours get me? And sometimes it's like, well, it would get you this from like a crappy first draft into something really meaningful that could mm-hmm. really spread and, and have a big impact. And other times, if you're honest with yourself, it's like, yeah, it wouldn't get me much, you know? And so asking that question, I think is really helpful. I also think this is why writers have editors. Yeah. Or, and there's different examples of, of that in the creator world. An editor can see your work more clearly than you can. Yes. And so having someone external that can say, give you that feedback of this isn't ready yet can be really useful. So you and I both had that experience this week. We're working on, I have, uh, I'm a blogger right here. Um, it has a introduction written by the one and only Barrett Brooks and a conclusion written by yours truly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it turns out the second edition, or not the second edition, I am a creator. You know, so volume two that we're coming out with has the same thing, right? You wrote the intro. I wrote the, do you think they'll ever let me write the intro? Or <laughs> Should I read into that more than... Anyway. If you ask, they might. <laughs> um, no, you wrote a really good intro and it ties in really nicely. It's actually a bridge between the two editions. Uh-huh. 
But one thing that we both experienced that I don't think you and I have very often is like good editors working on our work. Like we manage a business and we are individual solo writers. Mm -hmm. And so in this, I, like I sat down and I, you know, time blocked off and I wrote the conclusion to it. And then, and I had this thought of like, oh, maybe this line's better as the opening sentence. And I tried it there, but then I wanted to use it four sentences later. And so I put it back to the later spot. And then uh, Issa and Danny, our editors came through and were like, uh, not only should this line, like you were right, it should have been at the beginning, but like, here's how to make it work. And here's that other transition. And I was like, there we go. That's what, and it made me think that I think I want to hire an editor for my blog. Totally. That would level up everything quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I think having that outside uh, resource just to reflect back to you, the quality is always good. Okay. Sean Park, what precautions does your company have in place so that an employed software developer doesn't steal the complete source code to ConvertKit? Yeah, this is an interesting question because I almost want to read more into it. Like on one hand, if you're a developer on a software product, you have access to the complete source code. That's how GitHub works. That's how everybody does it, right? I could save it to as if I actually already have it on my computer, right? So there's not precautions that you could do um, because you need to give them access to the tools. Otherwise, you're going to handicap your team by being like, you can work on this part and you can work on that part and they don't work without each other. But that way, you know, no one person can screw me over. And you're just going to screw over your entire business if you do that. And so you have to have this level of trust. Mm -hmm. Now, there's precautions that you can take to make sure that something doesn't happen with user data, for example. And you can add logging and, and see, you know, every action so that if it happens, you know who did it. Um, but ultimately, you have to trust your team. And you have to realize, if someone walked off with ConvertKit source code today, I don't believe that they would be able to make a ConvertKit. One, it's totally a pain to glue all the pieces together and, I don't know, the 50 servers that we have running and the crazy amount. But <laughs> we believe that ConvertKit is more than the source code and that it'd be very challenging to replicate that. And there's lawsuits and all the other legal protections that would come into place there. So beyond you know overall security on that side, source code is not something that you have to worry about walking out the door unless, I don't know, you're doing nuclear reactors or... Right. Something else. But customer data is something that you have to be very careful of. And the most important thing that you can do there is limit who has access, make sure the trusted people have access, and then put, as I said, logging in place so that when people access certain things, there's records of that. That way something doesn't go missing and you're not like, wait, where did that happen from? Yeah. And we, um, beyond that, we even open source aspects of our application as well. We do. So we actively encourage people to steal that code, borrow, use whatever you want phrase you want to use there. So I think the key point to take away there is like, you can't replace $24 million of annual revenue. Like good right. luck, take the source code, try and do it overnight. You're not going to be able to do it. It doesn't matter if it's the same exact app. So there's some understanding of just that, like your business that makes money is way more than just the product. Yep. And that's the key thing that you, you got to keep in mind is there's so many elements that lead to, to business success. Yep. That's good. Um, Emily's asking, have you done customer or speaker gifts at ConvertKit or surprise and delight gifts? What do you do? How does that work? What ideas could I use in my business as a creator? I'm reading into it a little bit, but yeah, we definitely have. Um, we love gifts in general. We do uh, team gifts. We do 
birthday cards. We do work anniversary cards. We do gifts for speakers at Craft and Commerce. We do gifts for customers who use our migration process that are have big accounts and come over to use our product. We send t-shirts to people who complete our onboarding process. We have a lot of things that we do. We do have like a surprise and delight program we're putting in place too right now mm-hmm. that's along these lines that we want to use to empower the team, especially who work on in customer facing roles to give unique gifts to people that feel special based on some experience that they're having with us. So examples of that would be like, maybe they just had a kid and they have a baby registry live somewhere. Let's go buy them a gift from ConvertKit. Or maybe they're uh, like, we had someone whose grandmother died recently, a customer, and we sent them flowers. Mm-hmm. Like we, we really just look for ways that are contextually relevant because like, it's really cool that we send a t-shirt to everyone who finishes onboarding, right? But what's even more special is when you can send someone something that feels like it's actually like in the context of their life. They wanted yep. that thing or it is particular to their situation because that feels like magic. And we do that. We've done that at team retreats before too, uh, at especially Nathan's encouragement. The operations team has bought individual gifts, one or more, for each individual teammate at ConvertKit based on their interests, preferences, Uh, hobbies, things like that. And it goes over so well. It makes people feel incredibly cared for and just seen too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it comes to gifts, I always ask like, what's the outcome that you're trying to create? Because it it varies, right? With sending out a t-shirt, the outcome that we're trying to create is that you're part of the family. Like you're one of us. Here's your uniform. Put on your create every day, you know, um, default to generosity, whatever it is, right? You're now, you're part of the crew and you have the shirt to prove it. And there's an element of, like software lives entirely in the digital world. And so to have a physical version of that. So that's that side, you know, on the speaker side, the outcome that we're trying to create is basically saying thank you in a really meaningful way. You know, we know that it's not just about the money or about like wanting to be on stage or any of those things. Like you, you took this big trip, right? You flew across the country. You took this time out of the day. You're away from your family, all of that. And we would just want to show that we really, really appreciate that commitment and sacrifice that you made. Um, and then I think, you know, in the team example, or like when you hear from a customer, right? Sometimes they'll come in really angry about something and you answer it and then they go, you know, man, I'm sorry. That actually had nothing to do with you. That had to do, like, it's just been a rough week. And then like flowers or chocolate or a bottle of wine shows up after that. And then you're like, wow, okay. I feel seen. And that's, you know, that's what we're going for. So I would always don't go to, you know, let's send out some gifts. Gifts are cool. Instead, go to what's the outcome and the feeling that I'm trying to create. And then how could I make that happen? Yep. Love it. Same thing with like, like speakers at craft and commerce. We're just trying to make them feel like we are grateful. They can't, yes, we are paying them, but we're grateful. They decided to work with us and be at that event. So always thinking about the outcome. Yep. That's good. Okay. Kenneth asks, a couple of weeks ago, Nathan asked on Twitter about feature requests for ConvertKit. Can you talk more about this? What's the goal? Where else do you ask? How is it chronicled? And how do you share updates? Yeah, so we use a tool called um, Next, please, uh, which is built by Dylan, who's our uh, lead designer on the product side. Um, but you can publicly sign up for it and use it, just nextplease.io. That's how we track and chronicle everything. It lets us build up feature requests and um, track which customers are 
um, are using it or are requesting that thing. And, and then it has reports of like, hey, what's the most requested thing over the last 30 days uh, and so on. That's that side. The reason I ask on Twitter is usually the team has asked about something or has said, hey, we're working on this part of the application. I think um, a couple of weeks ago, it was about our email and like template editor, right? They're working on it. They're fixing these little bugs and quirks and these things. And I knew we had a bunch of research, but I wanted like another wave of really fresh information on top of that. And so that's why I asked on Twitter. And, you know, I was able to just directly give that to our product managers. And they're like, oh, awesome. We had this on our list, this on our list. Ooh, what's this? Tell me more about that and could dive in. Um, the other thing is, now that we've built out our product team more, where we've got two product managers and three designers, we've been able to get on a lot more customer calls. And so sometimes when you ask, hey, will you get on a call with us to tell us about the product or what you think of the product, that gets one type of feedback. And often if you start somewhere else and say, hey, what would you like to be better? What are your feature requests? What really frustrates you? You'll get those people who obviously care a ton. They share a bunch. And then you're like, would you be ever getting on a call to talk about this more? And it gets a different type of person. And one's not better than the other. It's just that by asking a different question, you're going to hook different people and uh, be able to get customer feedback uh, in different ways. Yeah. One of the things I think we've also found is it's just really hard to get customers to respond to emails. Yeah. Um, if you email a specific group of customers who you want to know more about their experience, very few people will respond. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's a variety of reasons why. One would be people tend to respond to faces more than logos. And so when Nathan asks on Twitter, when I ask on Twitter, they're responding to us, the individual, not the brand via email or via Twitter. Or similarly, if another teammate sends the email and their face and name are on it, but the person's never heard of them, they might feel awkward about it. And so some of it is just trying to get the information, you know, just trying to get enough perspective from our customer base that we can make sure we're building what's relevant. So anyways, there's a mix of uh, incentives and goals there. Okay. Well, I think that's all of the questions we've gotten today. So creator of the day. My creator of the day is someone who is already super famous and doesn't need more of your attention, but his work is so good. I'm going to promote it anyway. And then it's Stephen Pressfield. And also my resource of the day is the war of art. So Stephen and Tim Grawl and the whole crew over at black Irish publishing put together this thing on ConvertKit to give away a free audiobook of the war of art. So, um, I will drop the link in the chat. It's blackirishck.page slash free W O a for war of art. Um, and I've, I've tweeted about this as well. Uh, but this is just, if you go in there, you know, download the book, it's, it's fantastic. It's like three hours long. Great listen. Super entertaining. For whatever reason, I thought this was a really long book until someone, maybe it was Matt Ragland, I think, was like, hey, dude, it's actually a really quick read. And I went and read it and then was like telling people about it. And then Danny and others on our team were like, wait, you're telling me you just now read it? And that was like a year ago. But um, it's so good. It's available for free. Uh, and then I also have a Twitter thread that I'll link to in the chat where I kind of break down the whole funnel that they're using. Cause this is a convertkit landing page that gives it away through the email. Then on the thank you page, it promotes an upsell that uses convertkit commerce um, to buy a full bundle of a bunch of their products. Um, and then they've got the email funnels and everything else. And so it's a cool way to build out a full funnel and convertkit. Um, and I'll link to both of those things in the chat. Could be a cool episode in the future. So something yeah. for us to think about. 
Uh, my creator of the day, I think we've shared a little bit about his work and his organization's work in the past, but is Samuel Sinyangwe. If I pronounce that poorly, it is my fault only. Um, he is at S-A-M-S-W-E-Y on Twitter, and he is a data scientist who advocates for data-driven police reform. Um, he is also a co-founder of an organization called Campaign Zero, alongside activists DeRay McKesson and Janetta Elzey. We contribute to them monthly uh, in support of police reform around the country. And I really appreciate the degree to which they go out of their way to collect data and make data-driven arguments about positive changes we can make in the way that uh, we approach law enforcement in the, in the country. So anyways, if that's interesting to you, and if you are a data-driven person, uh, Samuel's a really great follow on Twitter and uh, their work at Campa Campaign Zero is really important. Yeah, that's good. As you know, at the beginning, end of May, early June, as the Black Lives Matters protests were really kicking up, you know, and there's all these calls for police reform. There was just so many things. And it felt like, you know, as you're learning about it, I felt like I was going, okay, what specifics are we trying to change? You know, you're reading and there's all these different ideas. And then came across Campaign Zero and it was like, oh, okay, these are really solid. Like this is the exact policy that needs to change. And this is um, stuff that you could see you know, legislatures and, and, um, others coming behind and saying like, yep, okay, let's implement those changes. And, um, so anyway, all that say, read about it, check it out. It takes this giant abstract, massive change that needs to happen and breaks it down into component parts. And so we're really excited to be backing them and, uh, keep learning more. Love it. Uh, do you have resource of the day or was war of art it? War of art was it. Do you have one? <laughs> I don't. Sounds good. <laughs> it's Friday. Take yeah, it easy exactly. this weekend. All right, y'all. Uh, always good to be with you. It is the end of Q&A Friday, but we'll be back on Monday with another topical episode. Follow us on Twitter uh, at Nathan Barry and at Barrett A. Brooks for um, all of our upcoming topics and to get the links as we go live every day. You can always subscribe on YouTube, but uh, often we're most timely on Twitter. So we'll see you next time. Sounds good. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today. Yeah.